is taking the results of our projects and getting them into use. It's not just that we can sort fish, it's that we can get that fish sorter in use in the U.S. food industry. Welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour, the podcast where we get real about the latest trends and technologies impacting modern manufacturers. Manufacturing Happy Hour. Each week, we interview industry experts that are at the top of their craft and give you the tools, tactics and strategies you need to take your career and your business to the next level. And now your host, Chris Lukey. Hey, hey, welcome to episode 84. Today, we're discussing how robotics can empower individuals and enhance national security. Our guest today is Jay Douglas, the COO of the ARM Institute. Now, ARM is an acronym for the Advanced Robotics for Manufacturing Institute, and I'm not going to give too much away yet because Jay is going to do a much better job of explaining their mission as we jump into the interview. But I'll say this for now. This organization is creating a nationwide group of elite manufacturing, academic, technology, and government organizations that share the common mission of a robust U.S. manufacturing ecosystem, impacting everything from the U.S. economy in general to the individuals that make up that workforce and can make up that workforce, all the way to national defense. Of the three things you can expect from today's interview, that's going to make up the bulk of the conversation. We're going to be breaking down the multifaceted mission of the ARM Institute, but before we get there, first, we're obviously going to get to know Jay and why his background makes him so uniquely qualified to help lead this effort. Then, after we cover each element of the ARM Institute's mission, we're going to wrap by talking about their tie-in to Pittsburgh and Jay's personal ties there as well. If you've been paying attention to tech at all over the past few years, you probably know that Pittsburgh has come up as a real leader in robotics and autonomous vehicles, so we'll explore why that movement's been taking place. As always, if you want to learn more, you can head to the show notes page after the show at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 84, where you'll have access to all resources that we discuss. Before we get rolling today, I do want to thank our sponsor, IME West. Now, IME West is one of the biggest shows in manufacturing, taking place April 12th through 14th, 2022 in Anaheim, California, and Jay is actually going to be keynoting at that event. You know, when I was living out in San Francisco, ATX West, just one of the shows that's part of this event was always the must-attend event of the year. So I'm excited to be heading back to this event, but whether you're in automation, plastics, med tech, you name it, there is something at this show for you. It's one of the premier spots to meet up with suppliers and other people in your manufacturing network. So if you're interested in attending, head to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash IME West to learn more and register today. With that, I think it's time to pop a theoretical beer and get today's interview rolling. It's time to meet up with Jay Douglas. All right, Jay. So, say you and I are hanging out in in Pittsburgh at a cafe, having a drink at a brewery, whatever bar or restaurant that might be, right? Where would we be having this conversation if we were doing it in person? Well, if you have any familiarity with Pittsburgh, you're aware that there's these three rivers that come together, and that's probably seen them on TV if you've ever watched a sporting event because the football and the baseball club uh, stadiums are right at the confluence. And there's a series of bars and restaurants right there in between the two stadiums. And they've got these great outside patios, and several of them 
overlook the rivers and the downtown vista. And I just think that's a great view. Uh, yeah. A lot of history here, the rivers, there's boats going by, you're right on the bike trails. Uh, that That's one of my favorite places to hang out. Jay, it's funny. Up until like last year, I'd never really spent any time in Pittsburgh, but I can confirm that's a great view because I got to visit one of those bars or breweries in that area right uh, before going to a baseball game at PNC Park. So I can very much picture where we're having this uh, discussion in theory today right now. Well, well, let's say we're, we're hanging out there right next to PNC Park, next to Heinz Field. And and someone asks, it's like, hey, Jay, I know you work for the Arm Institute, right? But w- what does the Arm Institute do? How do you describe that to someone if you're having a drink with them? Okay, so a um, couple of technical terms, but I'll, get, I'll explain it in a minute. Uh, fundamentally, we're what's called a public-private partnership. That means that we have uh, a sponsorship from the United States government, particularly the Defense Department, and uh, we are a consortium of right now close to 340 different companies, universities, schools, and nonprofits. So we bring all of those organizations together with the Department of Defense. Uh, What we do is we periodically publish problem statements. You know, can you do this with a robot? How would you do it? And we have teams of our members come together and give us a proposal that they'd like to do that and they'd like us to sponsor it. And so we evaluate the proposals along with, you know, some peer review teams from our membership, uh, our sponsors from the Department of Defense, as well as our own staff. And we select projects and then we fund them. A project is typically a half a million dollars for 12 months. Um, And at the end of the project, what happens is we share the results across the rest of the membership. Uh, the, the, the team that develops the project results owns the IP, but as a member mm-hmm. of the consortium, they agree that they will share it with others, other members of the consortium, for internal R&D. If somebody wants to use it to go straight into a commercial project, they have to license it and pay a royalty fee. But that's what we do. We fund projects, we share results, we bring people together, and in some very specific instances, we solve specific problems for the Department of Defense and some other federal agencies. Uh, We just hit our five-year anniversary, and we've already launched 124 projects. Wow. So we've been pretty busy. We have a very strong, pretty large, robust membership, and we're very active. with our project calls, we, you know, our biggest year, we think we did six project calls and probably launched over 30 projects that year. So we've been pretty busy. No kidding. And, and for, you know, you mentioned you've been doing this for five years now. It's a pretty young organization, all things considered, but it sounds like you've accomplished a lot during that time. Yeah, that's, that's a standing start too. So we didn't, (laughs) (laughs) I was the first employee. um, So I had to hire people. And then we had to build a membership program and start recruiting members. Uh, we didn't fund our first project until we'd been in business about 12 months. So, but we've been, we've been very active since. We have 21 people on our team. And, uh, and we're off and running. 
And, and Jay, we're going to get into more of some of the specifics about the ARM Institute's mission later in the interview, but, but something jumped out at me. You mentioned these problem statements and all these projects you work on. Can you give us an example of what a typical problem statement might look like that that the ARM Institute enc encounters just to paint a picture for the audience initially? Well, that's a great question, and there's a whole variety of answers. <laughs> uh, we have had projects that have done everything from sorting fish to uh, uh, placing and removing screws from the wing of an Air Force fighter plane. Um, we are doing a demonstration this week of a robot that's making clothing. Mm. So we're, we're involved in sanding, grinding, uh, drilling, uh, riveting, uh, folding, sewing, <laughs> sorting fish. I, I, I was going to say, I kind of felt I might be opening Pandora's box a little bit with that question. Well, like, surely you're getting a variety of, of problems. <laughs> yeah. So the thing is, I mean, robots can do lots and lots of things. They probably can't do what everybody thinks they can do if you watch a lot of, you know, Disney movies. <laughs> right. But they can probably do more than you think in different ways. Uh, robots are really good at what we call dull, dirty, dangerous tasks. Mm -hmm. um, and, and with the advent of the last few years with artificial intelligence applied to the end of a robot arm, they can do a lot more. Uh, they can, they can see, they can make decisions. I mean, it, it, within reason, yeah. um, you know, they can tell the size, the weight, the species and the freshness of a fish. That's now, that's an interesting maybe that's one. not translatable into <laughs> other things, but you know it's a learning process. Yeah, so, yeah. The freshness of a fish that was not one of the answers I expected. Well, so that's the advent of artificial intelligence. You can mm -hmm. teach a robot and a vector. Um, again, it's a relative thing. You can teach it, you know, uh, firmness by having it squeeze various types of sponges. Mm. So. Wow. I, you know, for a podcast, we're painting a really good picture of how this robot functions, right? And, and we've got a lot more applications. I'm excited to hear more of your stories, Jay, but I want to hear your personal story a little bit first, right? Because I was looking at your background, looks like you have a background in sales and business development, right? And a big part of that background was at Carnegie Mellon for what looks like almost 20 years. How did you get into to that position and spend so much of your career doing that? Well, okay. So, I'm dating myself here, but I, I started, I've been in the computer technology industry pretty much my entire career. My very first job was, was selling technical tools into steel fabricators, welding shops, and steel mills here in Pittsburgh. Uh, brief stop to get an MBA, and then I went into the computer industry. I worked for Digital Equipment Corporation for a while and Sun Microsystems, two very large companies that no longer exist. <laughs> They're parts of other companies. Right, um, right. I went into the datacom business briefly, and then I entered uh, employment at the Software Engineering Institute at Carnegie Mellon. The Software Engineering Institute is a federally funded research and development center part of Carnegie Mellon, and I did business development there. Largely on the commercial side, my, uh, my last assignment there was uh, to run the European operation at the SEI. And so I did business development with uh, European clients uh, for about five, six years. Um, 
I left there and worked in a couple of startups. And then when this place was formed, um, I was I was brought in by the university who had hmm. written uh, the Carnegie, Carnegie Mellon University, who had submitted the winning proposal to the Department of Defense, and they brought me in uh, to help run the operation. I was the, as I said, the first employee. How did your experience leading up to the Arm Institute prepare you for the role you're in now as the chief operating officer there? Well, as you mentioned, I've spent a lot of time in sales and business development. And in, in the fields that I've been in, that has a lot to do with technology transfer, technology transition. And that's really what we're about here at the Arm Institute, is taking the results of our projects and getting them into use. It's not just that we can sort fish. It's that we can get that fish sorter in use in the U.S. food industry. And that's not happening right now because our fish sorting robot isn't quite fast enough yet, but it will be someday. I mean, these mm -hmm. things are evolutionary. And so, no, we, we do have many of our projects have been transitioned into use. And that's the holy grail of what we do. It's not just creating things. It's getting them into practice. And that's and, really what my career has has been about. Love that background. And and I want to dig into the ARM Institute now and, and some of the, the finer details of your mission as well. We've talked about the public-private partnership, how you're working with problem statements. Um, if, if I look at your mission, if I'm, I'm just going to read this off the website, it says the ARM Institute accelerates the development and adoption of innovative robotics technologies that are a foundation of every manufacturing today and in the future. But below that, I, I see four areas that that are specifics to the things you do. And I'd love to go through each of them if I if I can. The first one says you make robotics, autonomy and artificial intelligence available to large and small U.S. manufacturers. And something about that that jumps out, it's when we think of robotics, I think we can all think of a, a large warehouse, a large company using them. But, you know, how does a small company take advantage and how do you help them do that? Well, one of the so yeah, we do work with uh, some of the biggest companies in the United States: auto manufacturers, uh, commercial airline manufacturers, uh, mm -hmm. other large tech companies. But probably half of our membership is small companies, particularly small manufacturers and small robotic and, and artificial intelligence startups. And so, one of the things that we do is through our projects, we are able to de-risk. Um, robotic technologies for the for the little guys because that's one of the really big challenges if you're a small manufacturer you might know that you can do something but you really need to see it and, and have people to talk to that you can you know trade ideas and 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 de-risk what you're about to do or about to try um, and and that's I think a key aspect of that for all manufacturers um, yeah, if all we were doing was helping make commercial airliners, that wouldn't be such a big thing. Uh, or cars. I mean, there's been robots in car factories since the 1960s. But what, what we do, as much as we can, is help the smaller manufacturer uh, get better and more competitive and be able to deal with the challenges of the evolving economy. And and I mentioned I'd be asking you for stories before we started this interview. Can you give me an example of, you know, how you've helped a small manufacturer de-risk 
uh, their process of leveraging robotics? Well, one of the things that we have, have started to do, okay, it is, it is an evolving situation, is um, here in the building where I sit right now, uh, we've been toying with creating what we call a de-risking center, where we've been working with some local companies on some of their challenges. Um, we have robots, we have space, and we can try things out. And we can do it in a low-risk, uh, relatively low-cost environment. Instead of shutting down your small company production line, you could do it off-site, see if it works, and then make the investment. Mm. So we're 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 working towards that right now, and that's a key that's a key thing about you know our our trajectory as an organization. So it almost sounds like a prototyping center, then, right? Where you're doing the experiment at um, yes, but it's rep. it's very specific. It's very specific. Okay. We're not prototyping products as much as we are prototyping the the process of the manufacturing. Great clarification. We're not we're not inventing robot arms. We're you know we're working on the application and use of said arm. Mm, okay. Yeah. No, we I'm... work we work directly with most of the large manufacturers, most of the large robot arm suppliers that, that operate in in the United States, and we we've been blessed with many good partners that provide us equipment and expertise. So. Great clarification there. It's on the process. It's on the application, not reinventing the wheel of the robotics um, that uh, that are right. We're not building robot arms, but interestingly enough, that's Mm. one of the challenges in the industry in the United States is that a lot of the seminal work in robotics was done at the universities here in the United States. But there really isn't a major robot arm manufacturer that's based in the United States. You think about the ones that are out there, they're either in uh, it, in Asia or in Europe. It's funny. We we've, we've talked about, you know, not only how do robots help in manufacturing, but what does the future of the manufacturing of robots look like as as well yeah. and where is that going to be? So, I I yeah. knew we'd be opening up some some different uh t- topics here as we went yeah. through. Yeah, there's it. no absolutes to those statements, but generally speaking, that's the way that it is. You know, if I'm looking at this list, we've covered making robotics accessible to small and large manufacturers. Another one that jumps out here is you train and empower the manufacturing workforce. And and the word I really want to ask you about is empowering, right? I want to hear about the training, but how are you empowering the workforce beyond that? So um, a part of our mission, um, and very specifically, probably about 40% of our funding goes towards what we call workforce development for advanced manufacturing. There are two fundamental problems in the United States right now. One is there's a skill set gap in manufacturing. The other is there's a supply problem. There just aren't enough people that want to work in manufacturing, and those that do don't necessarily have the skills to work in a robotic-intensive environment. So we're working on both sides of that. It's really hard for us, you know, 21 of us, to create a, a bigger supply. But one of the things that we've done is we've created a, a, a capability. It's called roboticscareer.org. And it has close to 14,000 training programs on it. They're not ours. They're from suppliers all over the United States. And if, for instance, you wanted to get a career wanted to pursue a career change you know wherever you are you could get on this website see several jobs defined generally jobs 
and go in and say, I'd like to get trained for that job. Put in your zip code and it's going to come back with all the training courses that are within you know, proximity of where you're sitting. And so it's a way to connect with training suppliers. So if you wanted to pursue those jobs, you could. So we're working on that. We're working on creating better, faster apprentice programs, uh, better, faster, you know, quick training programs for people to get into, to, to, you know, get into the advanced manufacturing workforce, because that's a real problem. Um, you know, the skill set gap and the supply problem. I remember years ago watching an interview with the Apple computer executive, and he was asked, well, why don't you make these things in the United States? Is it all about cost? So no, it's it's about scalability and skill set. You know, we don't have that in the United States any longer. We, you know, one of my colleagues once said that if you could only purchase what's made in the United States, you'd be naked, sitting on the ground, and unable to communicate. Mm. So the interesting thing is, we used to make all of our own clothing, but we don't any longer. I mean, in volume. Okay. Yeah. There's always somebody that's making shirts down the street. Sure. We don't make furniture really mm -hmm. much any longer. And we've really never, ever made cell phones and laptops. So, you know, those are things that, boy, if we could start to bring them back. But we don't have, you know, the scalability or the skill set. What was it I read the other day that, you know, there's something like 400 million iPhones yeah. Deploy. There's not a factory anywhere near North America that could make that many in a five-year period. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. the guy down the street might be making shirts, but he can't make twenty teal-colored polo shirts by next twenty thousand by next Tuesday. Yeah. You know? So there's yeah. a scalability issue, a technology issue, a training issue. You know, the cut and sew business is a whole different skill set. We don't do those things in the United States any longer. We'll be right back, right after a word from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by IME West. This event is the ultimate intersection of advanced manufacturing technology. From med tech and manufacturing design to automation technology and plastics, suppliers from every part of the product lifecycle are about to converge upon Anaheim, California on April 12th through 14th, 2022. Now, I spent over five years working in the automation industry on the West Coast, and this was always the show to attend. Whether you're looking to connect with technology leaders, buyers, decision makers, you name it, all these types of folks will be there looking for manufacturing solutions. But IME West not only brings together top suppliers, it also features a variety of educational programs designed for engineers and C-suite leaders alike. It's the spot to connect with the leading experts and take on the challenges and opportunities facing this industry together. Personally, I'm looking forward to it. I'll be there broadcasting live from the event. And if you want to join us, head to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash IME West to learn more and register today. Hope to see you in Anaheim on April 12th through 14th. In the meantime, let's get back to today's episode. On the topic of this one, you know, you said you've been doing this for five years now. Have you seen any maybe small incremental progress to things getting better over that time? Or what, what, are, what are the indicators you're seeing? 
Well, I think the indicators that we're seeing so far is the fact that some of these things can be affected if people were to use the technology. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a long, it's a long slog. And, and, and often what we're doing in our projects is getting something started, and then it gets finished by other people. It g- gets deployed to higher levels of technology readiness, if you're familiar with, with that metric. Um, we, we, we fund projects in the middle of the technology readiness scale. And you know, to get fully deployed, it usually requires higher levels of investment, and, which and is this- best done by fun- end users. And and I think everything we're talking about really ties into the the next one I'm looking at on on your list. The th- uh, a third aspect of your mission: strengthening our economy and global competitiveness in the U.S. Right? This ties directly into that type of conversation. Is it all just training, manpower, and scalability, or what? What else goes into that? Well, I think it's it's the application of technology. I mean, we don't have large numbers of people to deploy into a manufacturing workforce. I mean. You know, with unemployment, at what is it now? I don't know. Let's say it's 5%. Mm-hmm. You know, if you wanted to put in a big factory to start making stuff, where are these people going to come from? You know, we're also not a very mobile workforce. People don't generally move around the country for jobs any longer like they mm-hmm. used to. Yeah. So that's a thing. Usually manufacturing requires people to be resident where they're working. And so, I mean, that's that's a thing. But one of the things that you can do, and I'm not talking about robots replacing people, you know, taking people's jobs. I'm talking about robotics doing things where you can't hire anyone or where no one wants the job because maybe it is dull, dirty, and dangerous. You know, the interesting thing about that is that, you know, when, when robots have been applied, usually workforce increases. <laughs> Yeah. You know, things like the big warehouse and logistics business is now has a lot of robots and they're hiring. Same thing with the car manufacturers. They're hiring. So, um, you know, it's a, you know, but strengthening the economy, you know, the we need to have a, a real manufacturing base. Mm-hmm. You know, we can't have a, an economy that is largely based on food production and popular culture, which is, you know, yeah. What's our biggest export? Well, movies and TV shows and music. Yeah. You know, we, we gotta, we gotta be able to make more things. Um, and so, because it's a great, it's a great job Mm -hmm. category. They, these jobs tend to pay well, they come with good benefits. Um, they're interesting. You know. Maybe maybe this is a good opportunity for a feel good story. I didn't ask you for a story on the last one of training and empowering, right? But it, it ties into competitive competitiveness. I mean, based on the work you're doing, where are you seeing Arm Institute help people change the trajectory of their careers? People making leaps into more fulfilling work. Do you have examples around there? You know, some something that shares that hey, what we're doing is working. It's not an overnight solution, but it is moving things in the right direction. Well, we have, we've had over 7,000 users just in the last year and a half on our roboticscareer.org site. Wow. So we know people are using it and looking at it. Mm-hmm. Um, we are digging deep right now to try to get some of those very specific case studies, but we know it's being used. And so, you know, that's a thing because there mm-hmm. are lots of jobs open in this category. It's a, it's very complicated. You could say, well, why don't people want to do this? Well, you know, I, I didn't 
raised my kids to go work in a factory. I didn't understand it when they were growing up, but they all went to college and are generally have white collar jobs now, you know, and that's the thing. But, you know, as I think as, as society is changing a little bit and, and things like student debt and a long-term college career, I'm not telling people not to go to college. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying that there are options out there. And one of them is to, you know, trade schools or community colleges in your area have plenty of opportunities for training. There are so many of these programs out there. It was not hard at all for us to find 14,000 training programs. <laughs> yeah, I, seriously, it sounds like it might have been a, it was definitely a, a real effort that took some time, but it, these places are out there. Yeah. And it's, it's the, the opportunities, you know, if you're a, if you're a qualified robot operator right now, you know, world's your oyster. You're not out of work <laughs> yeah. unless, unless you choose to be. Sure. Sure. Yeah. We're, we're seeing that. I mean, these are themes that I think our audience is pretty familiar with, right? The three D's getting, you know, there, there being a surplus of jobs available. We just don't have people to go in them right now. But something I'm looking at here, my, th this I think is brand new to folks. And, and the last part of your mission I'm looking at is that you elevate our national security and resilience. And this is an interesting one, right? Because uh, just looking at this, I don't exactly know off the top of my head how what you do ties into that. So I'd love it if you can describe that a bit more. How does robotics elevate national security and resilience? Okay, so an investment in manufacturing is the key thing, okay? Mm -hmm. Um, I, I don't know, there was a there was an essay written by Alexander Hamilton in the 1780s, 1790s about why the U.S. government should invest in manufacturing. You know, that was before he was on Broadway, I guess. But you know, those kind of things. It's it, it's not really a new thing. But let's let's fast forward to the 1930s. You know, I'm going to give you round numbers and approximations. But in the late 1930s, George Patton very famous American general tank commander, took over the main tank operation of the U.S. Army. He had something like 400 tanks. That same year, Adolf Hitler had 10,000. Okay, let's go forward a few years. Uh, Pearl Harbor was it December 7th, 1941. I have this vision in my head that a week or so later, Roosevelt's in the cabinet room and he says something like, we're going to need a lot of stuff. Who's going to make it? And the stories that happened over the next few years are really fascinating. But the bottom line is, when it was that time, at the time that the United States decided to enter the global conflict in the Pacific theater and the European theater, we didn't have any stuff. It took a little bit over three years before we were able to move north in the Pacific and east across Europe, because then we had enough stuff to do it. If you're going to fight a kinetic war, you have to have hardware, okay? We didn't have anything because we had been to war for a couple of decades at that point, mm -hmm. and we needed it. A strong manufacturing base is 100% a part of national security. I'm going to go out on a limb and say you're a history buff. Is that correct, just based on the way we're going? <laughs> yeah, maybe. But no, I mean, th these, these, these things that we talk about, you know, 
we can learn from history. You know, if we, you know, we need a strong manufacturing base. We make cars and airplanes here, but we don't make a lot else when it comes to hardware. And so we, we need to be able to do that if things are going to, you know, heaven forbid we were to get into either a kinetic or a cyber conflict uh, of any magnitude. You know, it, it, there's been stories, you know, throughout history of this kind of stuff. You know, one of the interesting ones about workforce, very quickly, mm-hmm. was um, it was in the, uh, the, 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 the 1500s. There was a guy that invented a knitting machine because, you know, he wanted to be able to spend more time with his girlfriend. She was spending all of her time knitting. And so he had this knitting machine, and he went to the government to try to get a patent on it, and they wouldn't patent it because they were afraid it was going to put all these women out of work. The government then was Elizabeth I. Mm. <laughs> Guy's name was William Lee. What did he do? He went to France, got a patent over there, and started making knitting machines. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? It, maybe it was going to, you know, affect the economy for a little while, but somebody has to build, maintain, and operate knitting machines. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's always an opportunity. So, yeah, okay. I'm I'm, I'm nerding myself out with history stories. Here. No, this is great. This is the, I, I'm just regretting that we're not actually at the bar right now having this conversation <laughs> over a beer because this is the perfect trajectory for that. Well, there's a the, there's another question I often get asked is why is the Defense Department funding this? Well, that's the answer. Mm-hmm. You know, it is a matter of national security. I mean, specifically. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, great, great, great points across the board. Fascinating examples. And I think you really painted the picture as to why this is so critical. Um, I'm going to shift here a second to Pittsburgh as well, where you're based. Um, You know, first of all, you guys are headquartered in an old steel mill. Is that correct? That's where you're sitting today if I'm looking at your office, right? Yeah, but I need to explain what that means. Okay. Uh, You're looking, you can see above me. Mm-hmm. That's the superstructure of a 1,400-foot-long mill building that was built in the 1940s. Uh, I'm in a three-story building that is at one end of that superstructure. There's two other buildings underneath the superstructure as well. What you're looking at up there is the largest sloped solar array in North America. So that's all solar panels up above me. Oh, yeah. And, um, and I know a lot of people are listening to this on audio, but there's clearly a ton of solar panels visible yeah, behind a, you. <laughs> a ton. It's a good yeah. way to put yeah, it. Yeah, just an times. easy way to describe it. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we're on this site that was uh, at, at various times a steel mill. This building was originally built to house ammunition and then was turned into a rolling mill later in its life. Uh, the original occupant of this site was the Jones and Lachlan Steel Company. Uh, where I have a personal connection. My great-great-uncle Pat was the first uh, manager of the labor force here on this site, a Civil War veteran that worked for uh, worked for Captain Lachlan of the Jones and Lachlan partnership. Wow. He also served under him in the Civil War, of the Pennsylvania militia. So, yeah, he Uncle Pat worked here. For a while, and I was, uh, and now I'm working on the same site. But it, in Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh's an old town by American standards. Um, it has a long history in manufacturing and technology development. Um, the first oil well was uh, built here and, and, and run just north of Pittsburgh. 
Um, the glass industry, the rubber industry, the steel and coking industries were all basically created here. And a lot of the early innovations in food, uh, the, you know, food processing and food manufacturing, if you will, through the H.J. Heinz Company. And as a result of that, uh, the, the banking industry here in the form of Andrew Mellon uh, did a lot of what might have been termed at the time venture capital investing. This place in the early 1900s was much like Silicon Valley is today or has been. Uh, this is where innovation occurred. It was it was dark, dirty, and ugly, <laughs> but those were the industries that were here. And so over time, Carnegie Mellon University has had always had a leadership role in technology and particularly in robotics and artificial intelligence. And Pittsburgh has really become a hub of the autonomous vehicle industry. Um, you know, Hyundai has their operation here. Um, uh, through their company Motional, uh, Argo, uh, Uber, um, mm -hmm. Aurora is here, and, and, and several others. So uh, it's natural that we would be here, you know, based on and affiliated with the strength of Carnegie Mellon University's uh, Robotics Institute. Yeah, and it's uh, it's funny, right? I was living out in San Francisco for about five and a half years, and I kept hearing it's it was like every week, every month, someone new is opening up shop out in uh, in Pittsburgh, right? Between autonomous vehicles, between robotics, it's clear you also have some historic ties to Pittsburgh, and and I think you've already been hinting at this. You know, is is Arms' connection to Pittsburgh is that largely based on the Carnegie Mellon relationship? What else is there that that makes this the right spot? for for you guys well i think it's i, I think it's largely based on our uh, affiliation with carnegie mellon Car carnegie mellon uh, uh uh faculty wrote the proposal uh, gary fetter and howie chosette wrote the proposal that was uh, submitted to the department of defense uh in 2016 that was then awarded uh and 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 the arm institute was stood up um, so you, that's a, a direct connection with the university and the fact that they're here in the Pittsburgh area. Um, so yeah, there's a, there's a lot of that. I mean, it's one of the reasons why you were hearing about people opening up shops in, in Pittsburgh was because if, you know, if you were in the autonomous vehicle business, this is where it was happening. Um, and that made it a lot easier to get access to the expertise and also to hire people. You know, if it's if this is the hub, that's where the people are, and so, you know, makes a lot of sense. Make, you know, de debugging an autonomous vehicle really requires people on site, so it's not a, not a, you know, it's not a virtual type operation. Absolutely, absolutely, and 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 Jay, we're getting to the end of the conversation, but before I ask how to connect with you and the Arm Institute, I have to ask, is there, is there anything we didn't talk about today that you wish I would have asked you? Well, I, I think one of the things that we do here that we probably didn't touch on, aside from funding projects and, and making available and transitioning technology, I think one of the great value propositions that people have by joining our little band is that they get to connect with other people. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a unique uh, ability uh, to serve the, the, the U.S. government and, and particularly the DOD supply chain uh, because of our relationship. We can form teams of like Boeing with MIT with three startup companies working together to deliver something quickly mm -hmm. uh, you know, into the into the DOD acquisition supply chain.
And so, you know, that's that's a key thing. It's the connections that we make between our members and the fact that we can deliver that kind of a unique capability. Love that clarification. And and I think this it segues into the next question of, hey, how do people get involved? How do they get connected, whether it's an indiv- in individual, whether it's a company? You know, we've heard about roboticscareer.org. But how, how do you get involved and connect with, uh, with yourself and the ARM Institute? Well, first of all, roboticscareer.org is available to anybody. Anybody mm-hmm. can log in mm-hmm. and use the capability. Um, as I said, we're a consortium. We're a membership organization of companies, not individuals. So we have nine different membership categories. There's probably one out there for everybody. Some are on the nonprofit side. Some are on the for-profit side. Um, we are very simply arminstitute.org. Uh, find us there, and there's information on, on, on joining. Uh, in order to participate in our events, to meet people, and to join a project team, you have to be a member. Um, I think that's probably pretty obvious. So that's how you that's how you get it. Excellent. I will have links to all of those in the show notes page over at manufacturinghappyhour.com as well. So it's easy to, to jump into anything that the ARM Institute does. Uh, I, I do have one other question that that I wish I would have asked you as well. Once you started going down the, the rabbit hole of history there, I have to ask you, what is one of your favorite uh, pieces of history to read about, learn more about? What's what What's one of your personal favorites? Well, I think it should be, probably be pretty obvious. I've, I've done a little bit of studying about the application of technology throughout history. <laughs> yes. Because that's, yeah. that's sort of a, it's not just a career path of mine. It's also a, a, a passion. I mean, I've never really dug into you know, America's, you know, key battle conflicts, but I, 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 I try to become aware of them because, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, there's a history in my family of serving the U.S. military all the way back to the uh, Revolutionary War. And so understanding those conflicts and how people from the state of Pennsylvania uh, worked in, in those areas. My grandfather, who I knew well, served in World War I and World War II, and I got a pretty good understanding of his his experiences there. Uh, World War I, he was in France. World War II, he was... Um, quite a bit older, but served as a colonel of a training base in uh, in Virginia. So he was not overseas during the second second conflict. Yeah, for, firsthand history. Both of my uh, grandfathers were, were in World War II as well. Um, one uh, in Africa, one out in, uh, in the Pacific as well. So um, yeah. No, I, I appreciate you sharing the stories today. I can tell you it would be uh, someone fun to have that real beer with. And hopefully maybe we get to do that out at IME West here uh, coming up in uh, April 2022. Where, uh, where Yep, looking well. forward to it. So in the meantime, Jay, I just wanted to thank you for jumping on today's show and hope to catch up with you soon. Thanks, Chris. Cheers. Hey, thanks for listening, and a big thanks to Jay and the Arm Institute and IME West for making this interview possible. As always, you can access any resource we mention during these shows at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 84. That's the show notes page for this particular episode. 
And as we wrap up, you know, I know I just gave him a shout out. I actually gave him a couple shout outs, but hey, one last shout out to IME West for sponsoring the show. You're going to be able to find both Jay and myself there. We're both going to be speaking at that event. And if you're interested in attending one of the premier manufacturing events of the year, it's taking place April 12th through 14th in Anaheim, California. And to register to learn more about the event, you can go to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash IME West to do all of that today. If you're enjoying this podcast, if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and review over at Apple Podcasts. You can get there on your iPhone or on your desktop by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com iTunes. It'll take you straight there. It's easy to hit that five-star button, and your reviews don't need to be more than a couple sentences. And by the way, when I see those reviews, I love giving our listeners a shout-out on this show. So keep that in mind. We'd love to see you there. With that, that's a wrap for this week. Stay innovative, stay thirsty. We'll catch you again here at Manufacturing Happy Hour real soon. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Manufacturing Happy Hour. Powered by the Industrial Network.